Um, if you've got your program, open that up, grab a pen. There's just five easy things I want you to fill out, but uh, you'll want to have a pen to write a few things down as they pop up on the screens. If you're watching at home, you can always download the outline that we emailed to you. If you don't get that outline, then go online and try to find out where you can where you can sign up for the newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll also get um, those outlines mailed to you, emailed to you every single week. Listen, for those of you who are new to church or new to Christianity, one of the things I want to say to you today is that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Jesus is alive. He really is alive. Sin and death were defeated at the resurrection. And we can have our relationship with God restored because of the resurrection. We have a home in heaven awaiting us, as the Hymn of Heaven song talked about. Through the resurrection, we can have our relationship with God restored to what He intended it to be from the very beginning. And there is no other moment in time or history where there is more hope than at the resurrection that first Easter Sunday morning. The truth is there's no resurrection without the crucifixion. And we'll never be able to understand the beauty of the resurrection until we understand the death, the shame, in the power of the cross. What happened at the cross? Who was there with Jesus? Why did the cross even have to happen in the first place? And what does the cross mean to those of us who live in 21st century America? That's what this series is all about as we start a new series today. The cross has become the symbol of the Christian faith. Every church has a cross or crosses in it or on it or, in most cases, both in it and on it. The cross is something that we decorate our homes with. How many of you at least have one cross and hang in your house somewhere? Yeah, many, many people. The cross is something that we wear around our necks on a gold chain. The cross has become such a common symbol that it's easy for us to forget sometimes what it really means and what it really stands for. We forget what really happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago when he was crucified. Those who were living in Jesus' time would have never worn a cross as a piece of jewelry. It was a symbol of the death penalty. It would be like one of your friends wearing an electric chair around their neck you know you'd be like what's wrong with you who are you hanging out with you know what are you're you're crazy kind of a thing right it would have never been a decoration in someone's home because the cross was a symbol of shame it was an instrument of fear that the romans used to terrorize people it said we're superior and you're inferior the famous Roman general Cicero called crucifixion, quote, the most cruel and terrifying penalty of death. Its purpose wasn't just to kill someone. That was the easy part. 
It was also to humiliate them, to send a powerful message that Rome is in control. And that's why it's so extraordinary about Jesus that he willingly went to the cross to suffer its pain and its shame. And through Jesus' death on the cross, what was once a symbol of shame was transformed into the ultimate symbol of hope for the entire world. So during this series, we're going to go back 2,000 years to the foot of the cross. During those few hours that Jesus gave his life, we're going to, we're going to look at that time that changed history, and we're going to experience the cross through the eyes of the eyewitnesses who were there at the foot of the cross with Jesus when he was crucified. And through their perspective, I hope that we will gain a perspective, a deeper perspective of the cross and the power of God to transform lives. When you understand the cross, when you truly understand the cross, it changes you and you'll never be the same. Now keep in mind, we're, we're looking at it through the eyes of those who were there. Most of Jesus' closest disciples were not there. Peter and his crew, 10 out of the 11, or 11 out of 12, if you're still counting Judas at this point, they flee when Jesus, they go into hiding when Jesus is taken to the cross. Only one of the disciples were there. They were scared. They weren't there. Instead, we're going to look at the cross, the eyes of the handful of individuals who were there. Today, as we begin this new series, I... I want to see if you're familiar with this term, with the term dead man walking. Anybody ever heard that before, dead man walking? There's a movie several years ago. I didn't see the movie. Are you familiar with this term, dead man walking? It's a term used for condemned prisoners, those who are on the death row. They've been condemned. They've been sentenced to be executed. Their time is set. Their time is limited. And when they take the prisoner out of their cell and they start moving them to the gas chamber or to the electric chair chamber, to the place where they do the lethal in, in, injection, when they start moving towards their execution, the other prisoners will holler out, dead man walking! Because they know that every step this prisoner takes is one step closer to his ultimate death. When it's a dead man walking, there's no, there's no hope of being saved. That's a dead man walking. Today I want to introduce you to another dead man walking, a condemned criminal who 2,000 years ago, by the grace of God, he was crucified on the very day that Jesus was crucified, and he was crucified next to Jesus with an earshot of the Son of God. And we're going to look at how, through his experience with Jesus, this criminal was transformed from a dead man walking to a forgiven man in paradise in one day. I want to start reading to you Luke chapter 23. The verses are there in your outline at the top. Um, they'll also be on the side screens, or if you're watching at home, they'll be on your, your device that you're viewing as well. And I'm going to read you most of the verses from verse 32 to 43. It says, Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, with Jesus when they came to the place called the skull. 
Now, it was called the skull because this is where they commonly did executions. It was also called Golgotha. We call it Calvary when we sing about it in songs. And it's important to understand that this wasn't out in the wilderness somewhere as, as Hollywood sometimes portrays it. This was just steps away from the center of Jerusalem. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem, I've been to Jerusalem, and you were to go to the, to the Wailing Wall, which is the edge of Solomon's temple, right where the, Jew, where the Roman Praetorium would have been, you can walk down the Via Dolorosa to the place of Calvary from the temple, from the very center of town. And if you think about it, of course you can walk. Jesus walked it after he had been beaten. He carried his own cross that far. So it's not way out somewhere. It's kind of like in the wild, wild west when they would hang the cattle rustlers. They didn't do it in the bushes somewhere. They did it where? Right in the town square. You know, right in front of the church bell ringing. Because they wanted everybody to see that justice was served and you don't mess with our cattle or our horses, right? And it's the same thing. The Romans, they do this so that everyone can see it. They used crucifixion as a form of terrorism. They wanted people to see the crucifixion. The whole town knew what was going on. So they would be deterred. Don't you ever rebel against the Roman Empire or this will happen to you. It says, when they came to this place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. The criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Three crosses, Jesus is in the middle, two criminals, one on the right, one on the left, either side. Verse 35 says, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fashioned above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. Now, they meant that sign as a form of mockery. They're laughing, but the irony is, it's true. Jesus is the king. Verse 39 says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us, too, while you're at it. So the one criminal, he just joins in with all the others in mocking Jesus. But then look what the other criminal says in verse 40. The other criminal protested, Don't you fear God when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. This other criminal is coming, term, coming to terms with his life that he's lived, with the guilt that he carries on him, but he also recognizes that Jesus isn't guilty. And in this moment, he's thinking of his life after death. What's going to happen to me when I die? Look what he says next in verse 42. He says, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So to me, that's incredible. In the last moment of his life, the last hours of his life, this guy answers, probably life's most important question, which is, who is Jesus? He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he asked Jesus in one of his final breaths, will you take me with you? Will you save me? He asked for salvation. And then I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 43, and we're going to keep coming back to 43. Jesus replied, I assure you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus could see into the heart of this dead man walking. Although we don't know everything about this condemned criminal, we don't even know really what he was being crucified for. What we do know is that in this moment, Jesus saw his faith. In this moment, Jesus saw his readiness for salvation. And in the final moment of his life, this condemned criminal, in spite of everything that he's ever done in his life to this point, he receives God's salvation. So today as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, and as we start this series at the cross, an eyewitness account, eyewitness accounts at the cross, I want to take the time to explore some of the lessons that we learned from this condemned criminal about God's salvation. Now, for some of you, the lessons that we learned today, they may be reminders. If, if so, Easter is the perfect time to remember what God has done for you, this great gift of salvation that he's given us. We can be thankful for that. If you're a Christ follower, this will be a great reminder of what God has really done. For others, this could be new ground for you. Maybe you're just starting to explore the claims of Christ. Maybe you're just starting to investigate the case for Christianity. As we go to the cross with this condemned criminal for you, you may discover something today that changes your eternity forever, just like the condemned criminal on that day. Today you may realize that you've been living your life without God. That you are, in a sense, a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. And even though you're alive, you're moving through life one step, one day at a time, getting closer and closer to an eternity separated from God. Maybe today, for the first time, you'll recognize Jesus for who he really is and you will experience him in a way that you never have before. As we look at the transformation of this condemned criminal, I want us to look closely at this key verse, the last verse of what Jesus said in our passage, Luke 23:43. And as I said, we're going to keep coming back to it, and we're going to kind of pick it apart. And I'm giving it to you so many different times so that you can circle something different each time we, we look at it. It says, And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what can we learn from the thief on the cross? What does the thief on the cross teach us about God's salvation? There's several things that we learn from, five things that we learn from this one little part of the story. The first thing I want you to write down is, number one, God's salvation is by grace. Will you write in the word grace? God's salvation is by grace. The condemned criminal receives salvation from God through God's grace. Now, before we go any further, I think we should kind of take a step back and define a couple of terms, because depending on where you're at in your life, like if you grow up in church your whole life, you've heard the words grace and salvation probably since you were a baby. You've heard them your whole life, and you have a good idea of what that is. But if, if you're new to Christianity or coming back to church, or, or maybe, maybe you grew up in a religious system that didn't focus on this, it's important for us to understand what is grace and, and what does that mean and, and what is salvation anyway. Listen, salvation is simply God's process of forgiving our sins, adopting us into his family, and giving us, securing an eternity 
in heaven with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's God's work. Now, when we say salvation by grace, what is by grace? Well, grace means there's nothing that we do to earn it. It was all God's doing. We didn't earn it. It was a gift from God. You mean salvation is free? Well, it's free to you, but it's not free. It costs God plenty, right? Now, some might say, well, this guy was the luckiest guy in the world that day. But the truth is, it had nothing to do with luck. God had a plan for this criminal on this day. And God was going to use him to demonstrate his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. You see, this criminal on the worst day of his life, the worst possible day of his life, the last day of his life, he finds himself hanging on the cross next to Jesus the Christ. Look what Jesus says to him. It's our key verse. Jesus replied, I assure you today... You will be with me in paradise. Now, why did Jesus say these words? Circle in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. In fact, circle all four of those words. I know, now you've got two circles. Why did Jesus say these words? Because at the last possible moment, this condemned criminal, this dead man walking, he comes to the proper conclusion to life's most important question. At the very last minute, he understands who Jesus is. And he realizes that the sign above his head, it's right, it's true. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He is the king, the king of kings. And this condemned criminal, he never heard the next verse that's on your outline, the next couple of verses that the Apostle Paul wrote several years later. But I would imagine he would affirm this as true if we could ask him. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8, Paul writes and says, Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some, one might, perhaps, be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. This is what grace is all about. Jesus meets us where we are. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together. In fact, God offers us salvation while we're in the middle or the midst of our sin. Jesus did not ask this thief on the, on the cross. He didn't say, hey, you need to go pass a theology test. You need to go take a Bible course. And then I'll say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to the, to the thief on the cross, listen, you need to go and make restitution for all the things you've done wrong. Because it's too late, isn't it? He can't get down off the cross and go pay the money back. He can't get down off the cross and go make things right with who, whatever relationship he's wrong. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, look, you need to give more money. You need to help old ladies across the street. You need to go to church more, young man. It's too late for this thief to do anything that can possibly help to earn his salvation. And what he teaches us is that's what God does for all of us. 
Jesus, right where the thief is, he meets him and he offers him salvation and God does the same for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, God saved you by his what? By his grace. Circle that word grace. When you believe, and you can't take credit for this, it is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The condemned criminal teaches us first that God's salvation is by grace, by grace alone. It's nothing that we do. Obviously, he couldn't do anything. And that's good news for all of us. Next in your notes from a condemned criminal, we learn that number two, God's salvation is personal. Would you write down the word personal? First, salvation is by grace. Second, salvation is personal. He offers it to us personally. Salvation comes from someone to someone. It comes directly from Jesus, and here in this instance, it's to this specific criminal. Notice going back to our key verse, how personal it is. Jesus replied, I assure you, circle the word you, I assure you, today you, circle you again, will be with me in paradise. By the way, I wish we, I wish we knew this guy's name, don't you? Maybe it was Joseph. Maybe it was Jacob. Maybe it was Bob. Probably not Bob. Not too many first first century Jews named Bob or Robert or Bobby or Robbie or Rob. You guys, you Roberts have a lot of nicknames, let me tell you. If you're guessing names around here at Seminole, I can assure you the easiest name, best name, best odds for you to guess is is Bob. Just every other guy is Bob. Bob's your uncle here. Like 10 to 1 more Bobs than there are Jerry's. Don't guess Jerry. Okay? We got bass player Bob. We got used to have Bob the Biker. You got all kinds of Bob names. You get, you get his point. We, we don't know what his name is. And maybe that's how God wanted it. Because maybe if we knew his name, maybe then the story would kind of just seemed to be about him. Oh, you, Joseph, will be with me in paradise. I assure you, Jacob or Bob. But here, Jesus doesn't use a name. What are the words that he circled? It's all about, salvation is about you. It's personal. One of the ongoing myths about God's salvation is that it comes to people in mass. Let me explain what I mean. Some people think they get salvation, that they're a Christian, that they, because they come from a Christian country. For instance, if you were to look at all the 190 couple of countries that there are on the planet, you can look at, well, what is the beliefs of this country? And there are many countries on the planet Earth that the majority of people, they claim to be Christians. Nigeria is one. If you were born in Nigeria, you would be tempted to say, well, I'm from Nigeria. We are a Christian nation. Therefore, I am a Christian. Some people think that they're a Christian because they're born to a certain family. 
because I was born in a certain family, then I must be a Christian. You've heard people talk like that. Maybe you've talked like that. You know, I was born into a Christian family. What they go on to say is, we went to church as I, when I was a kid. In fact, some people even say it this way. They'll say, every time the doors were open, we were at church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Tuesday night, visitation. Right? And they say that because I was born in a Christian family, therefore I'm a Christian. Listen, in response to this question, well-known Christian evangelist, the late Billy Graham, once said, Being born in America no more makes you a Christian than being born in a garage makes you a car. i got to love Billy. Salvation comes to no one in mass. It comes to everyone personally. Your parents can't decide to receive God's salvation for you. In fact, in four weeks, we'll have a whole bunch of beautiful little babies and young youngsters up here. And the, we call it our parent-child dedication. And the parents are saying, I'm going to dedicate my kids to the Lord. But really what they're doing is they're dedicating themselves to raising their kids in a Christian environment. And we make it very clear on Mother's Day, every Mother's Day, you'll hear me say these words. We make no decision on behalf of these children because salvation is a personal decision that each of these children, that each one of us, have to make on our own before God. Your parents can't decide to receive God's salvation for you. Your spouse can't decide to receive God's salvation for you. You have to decide. You must make a personal decision to say yes to Jesus, to receive him as your Lord and your Savior. So what does that look like? How do you do that? Well, Paul, the apostle, answers this in Romans Chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you, open, you, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, maybe you've already made this personal decision and you've already found salvation by grace. And if you have, I invite you today to remember that what happened on that day 2,000 years ago to remember that salvation is, number one, by grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. And number two, it's personal. That it is Jesus, it's from Jesus to you personally, that Jesus died for you personally. If you're here today and you haven't made that decision yet, or you're watching online and you haven't made that decision yet, I want to invite you to use these next moments that we have together to reflect on what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary and consider that Jesus is offering you salvation, his salvation by grace to you today. And you can receive it, but you have got to decide. You have to decide for yourself whether you're going to receive it or reject it. So today we're looking at the lessons about God's salvation from the condemned criminal. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is personal. The third thing I want you to write down is salvation is immediate. Will you write down the word immediate? Salvation is immediate. Now, I hate to admit this. My wife Nancy was in the first service and backed me up on this. I hate to admit it, but sometimes I struggle with impatience. 
Pastor Jerry could be a jerk. If you're in the right, if you're turning left and you're in front of me, and that arrow that's only going to let three cars through anyway, it turns green. I give you a New York second before I'm blowing my horn. And if I see you on your phone, I don't even give you that. I just, I just assume you don't, you're not paying attention. And I give you my gentle warning. That's my gentle one. Two short blasts, as emphatically as I can make them. Anybody else struggle with impatience from time to time? Oh, yeah. I know some of you are like, come on, Jerry, get to it. Jesus loves me this, I know. Let's go get those donuts. I can still smell Krispy Kreme in here. Let me go. Don't worry. I'm going to get you out on time because we have another service coming behind you. Oh, we don't, do we? Yeah, that's what happens to you when you come to the last service. I can tell stories all day long. I didn't have a donut or a cinnamon roll. I'm on Weight Watchers. Don't worry, I'm starving. I'll get us out of here too. Celery sticks are waiting. Anybody here struggle with impatience like I do? Yeah. Look, if you struggle with impatience like I do sometimes, you're going to love this aspect of God's salvation. You're going to love it because it is immediate. You don't have to wait. Let's go back to our key verse. Luke 23, 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you. What's the next word? Today. Circle today. Underline today. Put a big star by today. Hurry, hurry, hurry. He says, today, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. He tells the condemned criminal, the dead man walking, that today, not tomorrow, not after five years of of purgatory, trying to make up for all the things you did wrong, not after several reincarnations where you try to get your, your energy right for all the negative things that have happened in your life. No, he says today, today. Salvation happens in an instant. It happens immediately. So he says you don't have to wait another minute when you receive Christ you immediately receive God's salvation. When you say yes to Jesus, He gives you salvation. When? Today. When you say, when you ask Jesus to come into your life and save you, He gives you salvation. When? Today. When you open your life, your heart to Christ, you can have salvation. When? Today. Acts 2.21 But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is available to everyone And the moment that you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This is what the condemned criminal experienced with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Immediate salvation. How did he get it? That's our next lesson. God's salvation is immediate. But God's salvation also, number four, is through Jesus alone. Through Jesus alone. Write down Jesus alone. God's salvation comes through one person only, Jesus Christ. God's salvation is only available through his one and only son. Again, when you go back to our key verse, Luke 23, 43, it says, And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. You can circle the word me. Because Jesus 
the Messiah, the one and only Son of God, he tells the condemned criminal, he says to this dead man walking today, you are receiving salvation through me. I'm giving you salvation. He asked Jesus for salvation, and Jesus gave him salvation through himself. Jesus, notice, he, he doesn't call all the disciples back together and they vote on it. He doesn't pull public opinion. Should we really give this guy salvation or not? It's nobody's decision but Jesus' decision to offer salvation to anyone and everyone he wants and to grant it to anyone who requests salvation from him. You can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, the truth is, you receive salvation through Jesus Christ or you don't receive salvation at all. That's why Christians make such a big deal about Easter. Holy Week is about Jesus offering salvation to everyone through his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the only one who can offer salvation because he's God's one and only son. And he's the only one who's died for our sins. And by the way, Jesus is still the only one who was raised from the dead. He resurrected from the dead and he is still alive. Now, there are other people in the New Testament who were raised from the dead. You say, well, other people were raised from the dead. Yeah, Jesus was involved in all those too, by the way. Well, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and this little girl that he raised from the dead and this little boy that he raised from the dead, they all died again. Jesus is the only one to rise from the dead and is still alive 2,000 years later. This is why I always say my theology is pretty simple. I'm going with what the guy who rose from the dead said. You know, you, you predict your death, die, rise from the dead, and never die again. I'll go with whatever you say. But Jesus is the only one in the history of mankind... To ever die for your sins and say, I love you enough to lay down my life for you and then rise from the dead to conquer hell and the grave. That's why you can't get salvation through anyone else. Don't take my word for this. Jesus himself said it. On the night that he was betrayed, just a few hours before he utters these words, today you will, see, you will be with me in paradise, less than 24 hours before that, he says to his disciples in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, I want to clarify something about God's salvation through Jesus Christ, something that critics often raise about Christianity. I hear people talk about the, exclusive, the exclusive, exclusiveness or exclusivity of Christianity, about how, well, Christians like to exclude people. But if you think about it, and even if you're just a little bit honest, you'll recognize that this isn't true. That's not true at all. Jesus never excluded anyone. He didn't exclude this criminal on the cross next to him. He didn't exclude Mary Magdalene. We'll talk about it next week and all her past. Good grief, he doesn't even exclude the soldier who put the nails in his, his wrists and his feet. Jesus didn't exclude you. He doesn't exclude me. He has never excluded anyone. Jesus says anyone, and he means anyone, who wants to experience God's salvation can have it through him, through Jesus. Christianity is by far the most inclusive faith the world has ever known because it's crystal clear that anyone can 
receive God's salvation through Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. You don't have to be a certain ethnicity. You don't have to be born into a certain family or into a certain country. You don't have to be born to a certain class of society, some social class. You don't even have to have led a good life like this criminal surely didn't. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to hope about it. Do I have salvation? Well, if you have received God's salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, you can know for certain that you have it and that you have it forever and ever. In fact, that's the final lesson that we learn from this condemned criminal, that God's salvation is eternal. Write down the word eternal. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is personal. Salvation is immediate. And salvation is through Jesus alone. And salvation is eternal. It starts the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ. It lasts through your entire life. And then it lasts not only through this life, but on into eternity with God in heaven. Again, we go back to our key verse, Jesus uses a really interesting word that we don't use very much nowadays. It says, And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Circle the word paradise. In our modern language, we would probably translate this verse, Today you will be with me in heaven. In the 21st century, we understand that heaven is the place that we spend eternity with God. But Jesus here says it's paradise. Choice of the word paradise is interesting because it ties together something that first century listeners would have immediately understood. They would have known what Jesus is talking about because remember, the primary reason that Jesus was crucified by the religious leaders of his day was he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one, the one and only that God sent this is the reason that there's a sign over his head that says, this is, here's the king of the Jews. Why is Jesus' claim to be the Messiah so essential? Well, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible. It goes all the way back to the very first book, to Genesis. In fact, it goes to the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, um, when when God created Adam and Eve, he placed Adam and Eve in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden. And that's where God walked with Adam and Eve. There was, it was perfect. There was no sin. There's no shame. There's no sorrow. There's no sadness. And in the first century, Jewish people, in Jesus' day, they would have referred to the Garden of Eden with a more descriptive term, they would have called it paradise. It refers to the Garden of Eden, a perfect place. Adam and Eve were created by God to live with God forever in paradise. No fears, no worries, no regrets, no sins, no sorrows, no sadness. None of the things that we experience in life. But through their sin in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lost paradise. The beginning... In, then beginning in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, God over and over and over promises a, a Messiah, the one and only Messiah, that one day a Messiah would come and offer salvation 
and restore original paradise. Paradise lost would become paradise regained and restored through the Messiah. I know this is kind of big, heady stuff. Like I said, all we really want is Jesus loves me this I know. Let's go get the donuts, right? But, but we live in the age of grace. We don't have to think about tying all these things together. We're not waiting for a Messiah to show up. We're waiting for the Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, to come back and take us to heaven with him. But he says to this condemned criminal, today you will be in paradise. This is what he's getting at, paradise that was lost in the Garden of Eden through our sin. He's telling him, through me, you can have paradise again today. The Apostle Paul explains it better in Romans 5, 17. He says, for the sin, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Sin was brought into the world through one man, Adam. Sin is conquered. Death in the grave is conquered through this one man, Jesus. Jesus offers us salvation that we can triumph over sin, that we can be restored into a right relationship with God, and that paradise can be ours again in heaven. Everyone, those who receive salvation and those who don't receive salvation, everyone is created to live eternally. Everyone lives for all of eternity. But without God's salvation, that eternity will be spent without God, separated from God in a place that the Bible describes as hell, just the worst place imaginable. But through God's salvation, we can spend eternity, anyone who receives Jesus Christ can spend eternity with God in heaven. That day, this condemned criminal discovered the answer to life's most important question, who is Jesus? My question for you here watching or in person on campus is, do you know? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? That you would hear the words of Jesus today? You will be with me in paradise? If you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, in many ways you're just like the criminal on the cross, the condemned criminal on the cross. You're, you're a dead man walking or you're a dead woman walking. And you're on your way, step by step, day by day, to an eternity separated from God. In a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to pray, a moment to pray. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive salvation from God so that you can know for sure, just like this condemned criminal, that you would spend your eternity in paradise. But before I do that, I want to challenge you so don't just think about your eternity, but think about the eternity of the others in your life who you care about. Think about the eternity of your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers, the people in your life who need God's salvation, but they, right now, they just don't know who Jesus is. They don't have a relationship with him. And just like it wasn't an accident for the thief on the cross to be crucified right next to the place where Jesus is crucified, it is not an accident that any of these people in your spheres of influence 
It's not an accident that you are in their lives, that they're in your life. God has put you in their life for such a time as this. Because maybe it's God's plan for them to be here next week when we talk about Mary Magdalene. Or or the week after that when we talk about the soldier at the cross. Or the Mother's Day when we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And just maybe if you invite them with you, you bring them with you, maybe they will encounter Jesus the same way that this condemned criminal did that day on Calvary. And then they will hear for themselves these words from Jesus. I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Think about that as we go to God in prayer. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes right now. If you bow your head and close your eyes, let, let this be a time between you and God. As I start, I just want to say, Heavenly Father, on this Easter Sunday... The first thing we do is we pause and we say thank you for what your son Jesus did on the cross for us, taking our sins upon himself, taking the sins to the grave and then being raised again to overcome the power of sin and death. And so that paradise that was lost in the Garden of Eden, it can be ours again if we will trust in you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who hasn't trusted in you, who has been going through life apart from you, that today, maybe for the first time, They will recognize who Jesus really is. They will say yes to you. They will ask you to come into their life. And they in their own hearts and minds will will hear your words. Today, my son, my daughter, you will be with me in paradise. Now with their heads bowed, eyes closed, why don't you pray? Those of you who want to receive salvation... You don't have to say it out loud. You can just think these thoughts. God can hear your thoughts and just say, Heavenly Father... I believe you are my Father. Just repeat those words after me. Heavenly Father, I believe you are my Father. I believe Jesus was your Son, whom you sent into this world to die for my sins. And right now, I place all of my trust in what He did on my behalf. I'm not trusting in my behavior. I'm not trusting in my promises. I'm not trusting in my good intentions. I'm not trusting in my church attendance. I'm not even trusting in my prayers. I'm placing all my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin. I admit that I need a Savior. I believe Jesus paid for my sins. And I choose to place my faith in him. Please receive me into your family. Receive me into your kingdom. I believe in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that if you came here today not knowing Jesus, that you'll know him on a whole new level after being with us today. If you have questions or would like someone to pray for you, please fill out the communication card and drop it in an offering box. If you're watching online, you can use the comment section to communicate with us. Or if you'd like to keep it private, go to seminalchurch.com forward slash prayer. We hope you'll enjoy the rest of this very special day with family or friends and that you'll join us again next weekend for another eyewitness account. See ya.